Talk about being in the wrong place at the wrong time. This guy was both. He was in his palace, which you'd go, that seems to be the right place because he was the king. And it was spring, and it was the wrong time to be in the palace because all the other kings were out for battle, and David was supposed to be leading his troops. But for whatever reason, he stayed home, disengaged from his leadership role. On a sleepless night, he roamed the top of his palace looking out over the city. He saw a beautiful woman bathing below. He was curious. What's her name? He was more than curious. Found out that's your soldier Uriah's wife, the Hittite's wife. He sent for her. He slept with her. She became pregnant and got word back to the king that this was indeed the case. Your child, my husband's been at war, just so you know. And David had lost in that moment his joy, his integrity, and his purpose. Now, what he did was not acknowledge what happened, but he covered it up. It was a great cover-up. It's the first Watergate, if you will, gate something. It was the Bathsheba gate. And here's what he did. He calls for Uriah to come back from the battlefield. He gets a bogus report of what's going on on the battlefield. And Uriah tells him this and that. And he says, that's great. Before you go back, why don't you spend the night, have a nice night and dinner with your wife, hoping that he would sleep with her and then everything would be fine. He finds out he doesn't go home. He stayed guarding the king's palace. The next day, he tries yet again. Hey, come to my house for dinner tonight. God, I'm good and drunk. And the thing that happened is Uriah was a better man drunk than the king was sober. Again, he didn't go back. So not to be denied, David then sends him back to the battle with a note for the, for the general saying, Job, I want you to put him in the heat of the battle. And right as things are getting really hot, I want you to withdraw from him so that he's killed in battle. And that's what happens. Bathsheba mourns. David takes Bathsheba into his own palace. She becomes his wife. And it's been seven months where he's kept this all under wraps. He hasn't acknowledged his sin before God or anyone else. And we get to his prayer that, that comes out of a confrontation he had with God's pr prophet. So the prayer is the psalm that we're looking at, Psalm 51. It, it, it's, we're, I'm calling it the everyday prayer because it's a prayer in, in three short words you could summarize the prayer. God have mercy. God have mercy. That's what he prayed. And that's what we need when we find ourselves short on joy, short on integrity, short on purpose and meaning in life because we are long or strong in this whole thing called rebellion against God, sin. And so when we turn to God for mercy, acknowledging our sin, he forgives and he restores. That's what Psalm 51 is about. But the deal is, it took seven months. Maybe it was eight months. I don't know how long it was, but it was somewhere between seven and nine months, right? That David kept it all under wraps, because that's what we do. We would rather cover our sin than would we confess our sin. It's just like the initial reports, right, for George Floyd. Uh, we, we noticed that he was suffering from a medical condition and needed attention. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. So what happened? What happened is God sent his prophet Nathan to tell David a story that changed everything. So Nathan shows up. He's the prophet. 
He's got a word from God, and David wants to hear this word from God, and he tells him a story. King, I want to tell you a story about this great rich man who's got everything. And then there's this poor man who's got nothing. He bought a little lamb, and that's like all he's got. And he treated his lamb like, like his own daughter. The lamb would fall asleep in his arms. He would feed it from his own cup. And one day, the rich man had a guest come by. Instead of using one of his own lambs from his large, vast herd, he stole the poor man's only lamb and gave it to the guest for dinner. David was incensed. This man deserves to die. Who is he? He's got to repay him at least four full time. And then Nathan sticks out his bony finger and he says, David, you're the man. This is exactly what you've done. You've had no pity on this man, Uriah, whose wife you stole. And so he said, here are the consequences. The sword is not going to depart from your house. This is all recorded in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. That's the historical backdrop to our psalm and our prayer from David in Psalm 51. The sword's not going to depart. What you did under the cloak of darkness is going to be done on the rooftop of the palace in broad daylight. One of your own flesh and blood is going to sleep with your wives. That's what happened when Absalom led a coup. Absalom is the one who took up the sword against his own brother, Amnon, who raped his half-sister, Tamar. I mean, it's all unraveling. And this baby that is born out of this adulterous relationship that you had as you sought your own desires before God's desires, that baby's going to die. You deserve to die. You're not going to die, but the baby's going to die. And so it's, it's this prayer now that has that history as its backdrop. So we get into Psalm 51. So grab your Bible. Psalms is this book of songs, 150 of them. Psalm 51 is this psalm that you guys, in, in the monastic days with the monks and stuff, way back in time, this, some of the monks would pray this prayer every hour. Others, every morning, eve, afternoon, at lunch, and evening. There are people that said, this is what the psalm they wanted read on their deathbed. Others, this is the psalm we want to preach for their funeral. This is a go-to. This is a huge psalm. And it's a short psalm, and it's a powerful song where we say, God, have mercy. God, have mercy in our great need as we face our, our greatest need, and that is our guilt before a holy God. So when we cry to God for mercy, acknowledging our sin, he what? He forgives and he restores. So what we notice, first of all, is he falls on God's mercy. He cries out for mercy, verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. So he's been covering it up. He's been rationalizing it, but it's been tearing him apart. And so now he does the only thing that he can do, and that is he falls on the mercy of God. Why does he do that? Because he's convinced that God's mercy is bigger, is greater than his own sin. And his sin was great. You could arguably say he broke in that episode in his life all ten commandments. Yeah, he had another God. He turned it into an idol. He dishonored God's name. He dishonored his parents' name. He didn't keep any day holy, let alone the Sabbath holy. He committed adultery. He committed murder. He, he bore false testimony, trying to cover it up with lies, right? And then on it went from there all the way to coveting your neighbor's wife. 
big sin. But here's what David knew. He believed it. He's experienced it, that God's mercy is greater. Now, there's a myth that's out there that says this, that God couldn't forgive my sin, that God wouldn't hear my prayer because of my sin. No, this is a prayer that's prayed to God by a man whose sin was huge. It was great. And this man found forgiveness, not when he was covering it up and rationalizing it and renaming it, but when he owned it and he confessed it. And so a cry for mercy is saying, God, don't give me what I deserve. Because that's what mercy is, not getting what we deserve. God, I deserve death because the law was clear. Adultery, murder, capital offense. You deserve to die. God, have mercy on me. Don't give me what I deserve. Have mercy on me. According to your unfailing love and great compassion. But the cry of mercy needs to be accompanied with confession. And that's what he does. He confesses his sin. Look at verses 3 through 6. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. So he, he goes, my desires that I thought I deserved when I was up on the rooftop, I'm just going to say it to you because you already know it. That was wrong. It was worse than wrong. It was wicked. It was evil. It was evil, God. I'm, I'm owning it. I, I didn't just sin against Bathsheba and her family. I didn't just sin against Uriah and his family. I didn't just sin against the nation. Predominantly, fundamentally, God, I especially sin, first and foremost, against you. Against you. And you're just. And you have the right to convict me. And I've always been a sinner, by the way, from the very beginning of my life, needing your mercy. And you've always been holy, desiring faithfulness. The Bible says this, Proverbs 28, 13, whoever conceals their sin does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. That's what's going on right now. He's confessing, he's renouncing, he's finding God's restoring mercy. Before that, he wasn't prospering. And some of us aren't prospering in all these different areas in our life. And we've never connected the dots to this ongoing unconfessed sin, this ongoing sin pattern in our life that we continue to let go and go. And we think it's not a big deal. We don't think it's as big as whatever somebody else is doing. We've called it something else. We've covered it up maybe with some other good works or whatever, but we're not prospering. And this is why unconfessed sin does damage. It does damage to our hearts. But here's what he does. He doesn't just confess it. He renounces it. Exactly what the proverb says. He confesses and he renounces. So there's this intellectual uh, understanding and affirmation. I've sinned. And then there's this emotional engagement where he goes, hey, I, I, I'm sorry for what I've done, God. I, I, I am so sorry. It's not sorry about the consequences. And those were huge. The sword, you know, bludgeoning his own family, his own flesh and blood, killing each other. Not only the disgrace of the sexual sin that would happen with Absalom, 
But no, actually what he's saying is, Lord, I am sorry for what I've done against you. Not just the consequences. The, the, the consequences is what the Bible describes as a worldly sorrow. It could have lots of tears, but it's not connected to God and to the relationships that we've harmed. And so he talks about this whole thing of contrition in verse 16 and 17. You don't delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. You're not looking for religious activity right now. What is he looking for? A changed heart. My sacrifice, O oh God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, sorrowful over sin. God, you will not despise that. You won't despise a contrite heart. And so this whole idea of a contrite heart carries the idea of his heart being pulverized, like just fed through a meat grinder. His, his heart has been ravaged by sin, the effects of sin, the loss of joy, the loss of character and integrity, the, the loss of purpose and engagement in this world. And so he's got all the marks of repentance here going on. So he, he's confessed it. He's got this change of mind that's leading to a change of action. Man, I thought it was a good thing. It was an evil thing. He's confessed that, and now there's contrition, there's this emotional engagement, and there's this ongoing commitment to obey. But here's what happens if we don't confess. That what happens over time is our heart begins to become calcified, hardened. It's as if we grow a callus on our heart so that the Holy Spirit, whose role is to convict us of wrongdoing, we we. we we grow insensitive to that. It's like our conscience, the Bible says, has been seared by that kind of hardness of heart. And so David has got this contrite heart. He's not resting on his merits. He's not resorting to denial and covering up. He's falling on the grace of God as he acknowledges and owns his sin. And the result is, verses 7 through all the way to the end, is forgiveness and restoration. I mean, when you go through this and you think about the, how, the, how Christianity, how the Bible answers these questions, of what do you do with guilt? How do you find joy? How do you repair this breach of integrity in our own hearts so I can look at myself in the mirror and not be ashamed? How, how do I have meaning and find purpose in my life? Man, it's all right here, connected to God's mercy and acknowledging that we need it. God have mercy. God have mercy. So you go to verse 7 and all the way through 19, and he's like ping-ponging back and forth, especially in the beginning, between his forgiveness and his restoration. So when it comes to his uh, forgiveness, that's his mercy now engaging the guilt of our sin and washing it away and dealing with it. And then the restoration is all about his grace, getting what we don't deserve that comes along the real consequences that continue on after forgiveness. But man, it brings restoration to all of life, our joy, our integrity, and our purpose and meaning. So he goes and he starts with, purpose, with uh, forgiveness in verse 7. Cleanse me with hyssop. Those are the branches that were dipped in the blood of an animal that was sacrificed. And it was sprinkled to bring cleansing and purification. Cleanse me with hyssop, with blood, if you will, and I'll be clean. Wash me, and I'll be whiter than snow. So he's picking up 
from verse 2, the language, and just reversing the order here of God's forgiveness, of his cleansing, of his washing us. Verse 9, of his blotting out our iniquities. Then he talks about restoration in verse 8. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. There's the, re the rejoicing and the restoration of a crushed spirit, of the depression that has come because of his, his inability and, and unwillingness to confess sin. So he talks about this in another psalm, which most scholars believe go hand in hand with Psalm 51, Psalm 32. And in Psalm 32, verse 3 and 4, he says this, When I kept silent in that seven-month period, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. I, I, I was just like weary and worn out. You talk about chronic sin fatigue is what's going on. For day and night, your hand was heavy on. What was God's hand doing? It was pointing out his wrongdoing, but he wouldn't own it. And so God, out of his loving kindness, kept pressing in and allowing him to experience the awfulness of sin. He says, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. It's coming. That hot, muggy August day where the heat index is around 100. That's what he's talking about. Worn out, no good. But God restored joy and gladness. In verse 9, again, forgiveness. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out my, all my iniquity. More restoration in verse 10 about the heart. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. More forgiveness and mercy in verse 11, do not cast me from your presence. I deserve to be banished, Lord, but don't do it. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me like you did to King Saul before me. In the Old Testament, certain individuals, not everybody, had the presence of the Spirit operative in their life. In the New Testament, after Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, we all receive the Spirit as we place our faith in Jesus Christ, right? But he says, don't, don't pull a Saul on me. I, I know you, you should because I've despised your word just like King Saul has. Don't do it, God. Don't banish me. Don't take away your spirit. And then again in verse 12, more on restoration. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your way so that sinners will turn back to you. He's going to teach us. He's teaching us now the consequences of sin that can be forgiven by the greater mercy of God continue and they're real and you don't want them in your life. The consequences are real. He's teaching us. It was so easy for me to write the note and then I buried my own children that were killed by my own children. The consequences are real. What I did under the cloak of darkness was done in broad daylight to my horror and shame and the disgrace of a nation. The consequences are real. But he's teaching us about even the greater mercy of God that's bigger than our sin. And he's teaching us what it looks like to turn back to God in repentance and humility. Verse 14, more forgiveness. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed. Murder. Oh God, you who are God, my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Deliver me from my guilt. And then verse 15 through 17, we already looked at. More restoration. 
In verse 18 and 19, more restoration. May it please you to prosper Zion. That's a name for the city of Jerusalem, Zion, Mount Zion. To build up the walls of Jerusalem. So Jerusalem is the dwelling place of God and it represents God's people. Prosper your place, God, your dwelling. Prosper your people. Strengthen the walls. Protect us, Lord. Then you'll delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, in burnt offerings offered whole. Then bowls will be offered on your altar. He's not praying for physical walls. He's, he's praying for spiritual strength for men and women who walk humbly with God and do what is right. So sins are removed and washed by the blood Guilt is, is erased, it's, it's moved, it's, 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 we're rescued from it. And, and that's a huge issue that you've got to ask yourself. If you're not following Christ, if you've got some other worldview, you've got to say, what do you do with your guilt? I'm asking you that. What do you do with your guilt that actually takes it away? Not that drowns it out. Not that you think maybe it's, it's, you know, enough good stuff that it kind of compensates. I'm talking about what do you do in your life? What do you turn to? What can you rely on to actually have the guilt removed? You go, I don't believe in the category. Well, yes, you do. Maybe not the biblical category, but you've got your own categories. You've got your own standards, and you know full well you don't live up to those all the time. And so you have that nagging feeling called guilt too. What do you do with it? The scriptures are clear. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he, God, removed our transgressions from us. And if we confess our sins, that's Psalm 103 verse 12. In 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us, not from some, but all unrighteousness. He's acknowledged his sin as he calls and falls on the mercy of God. And he's forgiven. His guilt is removed. That is amazing. And he's restored. All the consequences go on. The sword is going to continue in his family. It, it's real. The, the, the devastation of, of the just craziness of Absalom sleeping with his hair on, there on the palace roof in broad daylight. It's going to go on. The, the baby dies. It's real. Never hold that child, never see his 10th birthday, let alone his first. But the restorative grace of God meets him every day, restoring his joy and gladness and the joy of his salvation, giving him a pure heart, a clean heart, restoring his integrity, giving him renewed purpose and meaning and mission of life as he now is teaching sinners about God and how to live for God and turn back to God as he is all about now serving this city that just a little bit ago he was on top of the wall asking the city, mainly that woman down there, Bathsheba, bathing, to serve his desires. It's all turned around. Restored joy, restored hearts, restored mission. That's ours through the mercy of God. But be clear, there is no mercy without God's justice being satisfied by Jesus Christ. And so Jesus Christ, for the joy who was set before him, he endured the cross. That was his joy. His heart was fully devoted to the fathers. He said, I've got, a, I've got a desire that we come up with a plan B, but not my will, your will be done, Father. 
Oh, and his mission was clear. He says in Mark 10, verse 45, I didn't come to be served. I came to serve and to give my life as a ransom. So friends, turn to Jesus. Like the two blind men that heard he was walking through their town. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And he healed them. The Canaanite woman with her daughter who had been just ravaged by these evil spirits. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Would we cry out for the first time or for the hundredth time? Would we do as those who have done before time and time again throughout the day, throughout our lives? God have mercy on me. God have mercy on me. That's, that's our move today. You want joy? You want guilt removed? You want a new heart and integrity? You want purpose and meaning in your life? God have mercy on me. God have mercy on me. Turn to him. Find life in him. Let's pray. Father God, we bless you for your word that comes like the prophet with a story that wasn't just David's story. That's our story. And we would pray that David's prayer would be our prayer. We would pray that some would pray this for the first time that they would pray out, Lord, have mercy on me according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Lord, would you wash away our sin and our guilt? Would you restore and give us new hearts, clean hearts, hearts that are on fire for you and engage with your mission in this world? Lord, hear our prayer. For those praying to you for the very first time, would you grant them your merciful salvation? For those of us who've lost the joy of our salvation, you are so kind, God. Remind us again of your great salvation in your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. Lord Jesus, we love you. We cry to you for mercy for ourselves, for our marriages, for our families, for our workplaces, our communities, for our city, for this nation, for the world, Lord. We pray that you would have mercy on us according to your unfailing love. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.